students and faculty generally have good intentions when planning to work toward long-run objectives. It's always easier, though, to start those projects tomorrow instead of today. In this episode, we examine how commitment devices may be used to align our short-term incentives with our long-run goals. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, our guest is Dr. Dean Carlin. Dean is a professor of economics and finance at Northwestern University, co-director of the Global Poverty Research Lab at the Kellogg School of Management, president and founder of Innovations for Poverty Action, co-founder of Stick.com and Impact Matters, and a member of the executive committee of the board of directors at the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Dean is the author of many scholarly articles and several books related to economics, including my favorite introductory economics textbook. Welcome, Dean. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Today's teas are... A vanilla espresso. I've said it as espresso for the sake of our mutual friend, Matthew. (laughs) So we're going to have to show this to him and he will be very upset. (laughs) And I am drinking Bing Cherry Black Tea. And I have the Sally Loon... Disclaimer, I'm not sure if that's how you say it. House blend tea from the UK. (laughs) We invited you here primarily to talk about some of the work you've done related to behavioral economics. We know that students learn more when they engage in space practice, yet students tend to procrastinate, as do most faculty. So we wanted to talk to you a little bit about why people tend to focus on immediate gratification at the expense of long-run goals. So, you know, the heart of it is human nature to some extent. And I think the thing to realize, though, is that it's not a universal truth, right? There's many situations and many people who are more patient than others that are patient in one domain, not in another. There's a general sense, of course, that we value things more today than we do tomorrow. This is kind of at the heart of economics. But a lot of the issues that we're doing research on and some of the active policies that we're working on aren't so much about whether people are patient or not. It's about whether they succumb to temptation. And there is a difference. And the difference is this. When we talk about succumbing to temptation, what we're saying is, if you ask me what I want to do in a month, I tell you I want to eat healthily, I want to exercise, I want to train for a marathon. And then when a month comes, and now the month from now is now today, and you say, what are you doing today? And I go, oh, yeah, that chocolate cake looks really good. (laughs) And I ran out of time. I'm not going to go to the gym today. And I go, I'm too tired. I prefer to go to the movies. And that marathon, yeah, it's kind of cold. I guess I kind of knew that a month ago, but I, it was out of mind. And so I'll train for that later. And so the point is, my preferences change. And that's something that economists historically did not handle very well, this idea of preferences changing. And yet that is what behavioral economics has done, is basically trying to build better models that take into account that reality of preferences changing. Now, whether we call it preference and changing or not is kind of a technical jargon thing, but the basic idea that you can say you want A over B in a month, and then when a month comes, you say, actually, I prefer B over A. And that's a fundamental change in a lot of the ways that economists were thinking about things. And this applies in many domains. And the reality is, 
I might be really well disciplined when it comes to spending money on one thing, for instance, like clothing. I have like almost zero temptations on clothing. But yet for peanut M&Ms, I have a real big problem. <laughs> and I know there's lots of people that are exactly the other way around, right? And so it's not something that we can attribute to someone as an individual characteristic of saying, you succumb to temptations and you don't. Everybody has their different areas where they're strong and they're weak. So when we want to accomplish something in our academic field, or we want our students to accomplish something in what they're studying, how do we get them to not succumb to that temptation of doing the thing that seems immediately desirable? So I think the absolute single most important thing is to help someone become self-aware. Once you do that, then there's a few different paths that might work. And people are different, so that path might be different. But the first step that in most situations is important for that kind of weakness is to help people become self-aware. And by self-aware, I mean aware of the fact that if they don't change something about their environment, that they're on a certain path and they're likely to engage in that temptation behavior. And even though they say now they don't want to do it, if they don't change something or do something different, they're more likely to do it. And so what is that path that they could go down? Well, one example, which is what you mentioned earlier, is stick.com, which is a website that I started that allows people to write commitment contracts. So if I want to, let's put it in the school work or the work context, suppose I have a partnership with a co-author and I am being derelict in my duty to write the introduction. We agreed I'm supposed to take first stab at. And every week there's something else comes up and I don't get to it. So I go on stick and I write a contract with my friend, my co-author. And I say, if I don't deliver it to you by next Friday, I owe you $500. That's still not a perfect contract, right? I mean, I could hand him a piece of crap. That's not a very well-written document. And he could say, this isn't good. So there's lots of wiggle room there, but there has to be some level of trust with my collaborator. That's a contract that the collaborator can call me out on and say, look, we both know this is not what you said you would do. So you still need some element of trust in that agreement to make that work. But that's the kind of thing you can do. And by making that concrete plan and actually making it even more costly beyond just continued shame and scathing emails from your friend, it makes you more likely to engage in the behavior you say you want to engage in. The punchline we use is it increases the price of ice. Whatever your vice is, it's a way of increasing that price. So the goal is basically to align the short-term incentives with the long-run goals? That's exactly right. Make it so that the prices you're facing now are aligned, are going to drive you to the behavior that you say in the long run you want to engage in. So you're changing the cost or benefits of the activity immediately through some mechanism such as stick.com. Exactly. And of course, you know, I could write a contract with you just on the side, just by emails and say, hey, if I don't do X, I hear you Y. So stick is a vehicle for making it easy for people to do this. One of the most popular options on Stick is actually where I don't give money to you, but I give money to a charity that I hate. This might work really well if we disagreed on some political issue, which I doubt we do. But I suspect over the years we've talked about things, we would have identified some disagreement if we had one (laughs) that was stark enough on the extremes. But if we did, it would work out really well because I could say, hey, I'll send money to the charity on the other side of the political spectrum, which you like and I hate, and then you're happy to enforce that. (laughs) So anti-charity seem to be really effective. Yes. For example, I think you recommend for liberals, I haven't checked recently, but for liberals, you recommend the NRA or a Republican super PAC. And for Republicans, I think you recommended the ACLU or a Democrat super PAC. That's exactly right. And we also have gun control, abortion, gay rights, and super PACs on the two sides. And for the religious people in England, we offer up different football teams. So you can support (laughs) Chelsea or Tottenham. (laughs) And the money goes off to the team that you hate in England. 
What types of commitments do people make on stick.com? The single most common shouldn't be a surprise, which is weight loss. I mean, that is the biggest issue where this is highly relevant. Everybody can think of someone who says they want to lose weight and somehow doesn't do it. And every day it's like, tomorrow I'll do it. Smoking cessation is another very common one. And we have seen several randomized trials done, not via the stick website, but outside, but with the same exact contract structure that show that it can be very effective for helping people stop smoking if they agree to sign up for this contract. So smoking cessation is common, exercise is common. There's also a, a very large set of interesting contracts that people come up with on their own that are everything from dating to marital relations, to work, to getting work done, to flossing your teeth, <laughs> to speaking more slowly to foreigners in New York City was one of my favorites. Another one of my favorites just said, I will not date any more losers. And the punchline that I really liked in particular was that this person named a friend as their referee. The website allows you to name a friend who gets to adjudicate whether you succeed or fail. And so this person said, I will not date any more losers. And Susie gets to decide if any of my dates are losers or not. That was awesome. <laughs> Have you seen good success with people using stick.com? Yes, but as a social scientist, I want to caution my yes. So it's very pleasing to get emails. And I do get them fairly periodically from people telling me some story about stick or I meet someone and they tell me about how they used it to achieve a goal and it wasn't as great. And that makes me very happy. In the back of my mind, as a social scientist, I'm always like, well, that's great, but did we cause that to happen? Or were you just the kind of person who was going to achieve that goal anyhow, and you used stick as your vehicle, but had stick not existed, you would have found some other way because you were just a really driven person dedicated to overcoming your temptation problem. Now, that's the whole reason why we do run randomized trials, because we want to know, did we cause that to happen? Or are we just the stepping stone along the path that was going to be taken anyhow? And there have been randomized trials done on commitment contracts, and we do find very strong, consistent evidence that for those who sign up, it is a very strong tool that does lead to behavior change that would not otherwise happen. Having said that, take an example of a study I did in the Philippines on smoking cessation, doing a contract that was almost exactly like stick. The difference was the money, if they failed, went to a local orphanage. It didn't go to a charity they hate. And there, we had a very large effect on likelihood of stopping smoking, about a 30 percentage point shift in the likelihood they stopped. That's a big, big treatment effect. But only one out of nine people said yes to opening the contract. Eight out of nine said, huh, yeah, I know I told you I want to stop smoking, but I guess I don't really want to stop that badly, or I don't think I can, and so I'm not going to sign this contract because I think that'll just end up costing me money. And I'll still spend money on cigarettes. And so I won't sign the contract. So eight of nine did not, but one out of nine did. And the idea was that they were taking money they were spending on their cigarettes and instead they're putting in the account. So even if they kind of stopped smoking some and went back, we don't think of that as a bad thing, even if they lose the money because they did smoke fewer cigarettes in the meanwhile, failed to stop. So it didn't work, but they did smoke less and the charity got some money. So one of the things that this makes me realize, it goes back to a question you asked earlier, which is helping people be self-aware. How do you move the needle on that one out of nine? Why is it only one out of nine? Is it that people don't realize that if they don't do something like this, they're going to probably just continue smoking and they need to engage in some sort of change in their environment, change in the prices they face, change in some peer influence, change in something to help them stop smoking. That's not going to just happen because they wake up one day and decide to do it mentioned randomized controlled experiments, and I know that's one of the things you've done extensively with IPA, Innovations for Poverty Action. One of the things I've noticed in much of the research and teaching and learning is often people do an intervention, 
and they look at how it works for the students who actually use that intervention. But they don't get evidence on the counterfactual. So you don't know how it would have worked in the absence of that intervention. So how might perhaps we think about doing more randomized controlled experiments in educational research? So I think there's a lot of settings in which one can do them in education. They do need large classrooms or multiple classrooms or collaborations across universities in order to have a sufficient sample size. But there's lots of ways that one could do it. I'll give you an example. We have a Principles of Economics textbook that you mentioned earlier. And our theme very much in this book is kind of two-pronged. One is it's a very much a theme about economics is a good thing that if you use it can help you actually improve your own life and also help improve public policy. So we're trying to get it away from this bad image of being a dismal science and instead point out that economics really can be a path towards better lives. But the other part is trying to be very grounded in empirical analysis and examples that are real, that provide data and a crisp understanding of how these economic theories actually play out in real life. And one of the things that we wanted to do in this is try to understand, well, does reading the book help learning? Kind of a dangerous question for us to ask. I'm a little scared. We haven't done this yet, but we started a pilot of it where we wanted to get professors at different universities who are using the book to basically offer students a little bit of like a raffle where there's a quiz that's online that we can organize at the end of a chapter that's where students have a bit of an incentive to read those chapters. And we can randomize which students in which we get that incentive. And they're told, read chapter four and go online. There's going to be 10 questions on this website that the authors of the book set up. And you just answer those 10 questions. And if you answer them correctly, or eight out of 10 or something like this, then you get entered into a raffle for an Amazon gift card. And what this allows us to do because of all the electronic homework and problem sets and things of this nature is actually run a test of whether assuming that that prize leads to an increase in reading of the actual textbook, we can actually see the impact of reading the textbook on test outcomes. And so this is an example of the kind of research that one can do. Why might we do this? Because imagine instead we did the alternative, which is just to take a final exam and ask people ahead of the final exam, hey, by the way, we just want to know who really read the book and who didn't. Suppose we got a list and we got, you know, two thirds of the class read it, one third did not. And then we looked at the grades and we said, ah, it looks like the two thirds of the class that read the book did better on the final exam than one third did not. That would be a really bad analysis. That would be a really horrible thing to conclude and say, aha, that's our book causing that change to happen and improve test score. Because anybody who is reasonable would look at us and say, well, wait a second, the two thirds that read the book, they sound like better students. They're more diligent, they're more disciplined, they do their assignments. And so they probably just studied harder in general. They invested more time in the course. They maybe even went to the lectures and the other third didn't even bother going to lectures. All sorts of things are different. And so you cannot just look at the difference in test scores and say, that's caused by reading the book. And so that's why we set up randomized trials in that way, is to try to get at the causality question, not the correlation question. So do you have any research or advice about motivating the students who wouldn't be those one of nine to sign a contract in the first place to actually get them to commit to doing better? Have you done any research in that area to think about that? For what it's worth, we're actually in the middle of setting up studies on this. And part of the idea is a little bit of a two-stage process. Let it play out a little bit without and see whether they succeed or fail. Ask people to make predictions up front. Will you succeed or fail? Ask them up front, say, you know what, if you don't succeed, how about in the future writing a commitment contract? Because a lot of people might say, I don't need to do a commitment contract. I'll do it. And then you say, okay, but just in case though, just in case, how about in a month, if you haven't done it, then do a contract. They're like, yeah, fine. That's fine. Because I'll do it. So it's okay. And then a month comes and they haven't done it. And you go, 
you remember that thing you said a month ago, you said you do it, you didn't, but you said if you didn't do it, you write a contract. So here we are. <laughs> you want to do the contract? So we're actually testing that out in a couple different domains to see if that's a good way of helping people become self-aware. And it might be actually a really nice way of doing it because some people will actually succeed in that first month. That's good. That's great. We want that, but we want to be there to kind of clean up afterwards and pick up and help the people that are not able to achieve that goal. One of the things we're doing on our campus this semester is we have a reading group of Sandra McGuire's Teach Students How to Learn. And one of the things she suggests is that very sort of intervention, that the best time to encourage students to commit to trying new strategies is after they've tried their existing strategies and they've been unsuccessful. So they're primed to at least consider it. That sounds great. I agree. You talked a little bit about stick.com. Are there other types of commitment devices that students might use to encourage behavior consistent with their long-run objectives? So I think there are some in the social side. As an example, there's studying is the obvious that we talked about, but there's a lot of things that are the kinds of things that we all say we want to do, but when the time comes, maybe is time-consuming or costly, like donating money to charity, right? There might be some cause, call it climate change, call it poverty in developing countries, call it poverty in America, whatever the case is. And it's something that is troubling to us, something that we feel like even if we contribute a little bit, it's important, we can contribute a little bit, and that little bit can make a difference, and we want to be a part of that. But yet, when it comes time at the end of the month, or worse yet, at the end of the year, when a lot of people do think about writing checks and providing support to charities, they're left with whatever's in their bank account. And why is less in their bank account than they expected? Well, let's go back to the earlier conversation. It's because they were in a mall and that shirt looked interesting and they went out to one more dinner than they had planned to in their budget. Or they were at dinner and they had one more margarita than they had planned to. These things slip through and they're never thought about when you're thinking about your overall budget and so the end of month comes and you don't have the money or the end of the year comes and the money's not there. And the idea is, again, thinking about, well, what proportion of income do you want to be spending on charitable? goods and supporting other people and helping align those things you say you care about with your actual behavior of what you're actually doing with your money after paying for the things you really, really need, like rent and electricity. So there are various tools for trying to do that. Locking in automatic payments every month, for instance, so that it just happens automatically. There's a new app that I'm helping to do research with them to help figure out how to promote called Momentum which tags giving towards behaviors in your life or behaviors in other people's lives. So you could say, every time I go to Starbucks, I want to donate 10% of my spending at Starbucks to clean water in developing countries. Or you can say, every time I buy clothing, I want to send money to a homeless shelter in America. Or you can tag things to other people's behavior. Every time Trump tweets, I want to send money to the ACLU. <laughs> that could get really expensive. Well, you control how much. <laughs> <laughs> and they can do things on both sides of the political spectrum. That's just one example. That discussion reminds me of a study, I think you were involved in a study on fertilizer in sub-Saharan Africa? Yes. This is research that was conducted under the umbrella of Innovations for Poverty Action, but it's not my personal research. And it was a striking example of how these issues of temptation and financial management and planning for the future versus dealing with things today, this is germane to people whether they're rich or poor. And in the case of using fertilizer, this is one of those cases where if you go to most for farmers, low-income farmers in sub-Saharan Africa, most farmers do know that using more fertilizer is better for them in the long run in terms of earning more money. But if you go at 
planting season when they need the fertilizer and you say, well, why aren't you using fertilizer? The most common answer is not that I don't know to do it, but just that, well, I ran out of money because I just had three or four months of the hungry season where I used up all my money. And so what the researchers did is went to them at harvest when they're flush with cash and said, would you like to buy a voucher now that is good for some fertilizer? And you just come back in three months and you use the voucher to get you fertilizer. And by the way, if you change your mind, you feel free, you can cash this voucher back in for cash. So it's not actually a very strong commitment. And farmers said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And so they did that. And then the fertilizer use went way up. So the notion is pre-committing to things and locking that in somehow becomes the new status quo. And then it forces that change in behavior. It makes it more likely that you'll persist with that change in behavior. Exactly right. And one of the other lessons we learned is that soft commitments are usually probably better than hard ones. If it's too binding, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. If it's too hard of a commitment, then people might be reluctant to agree to the commitment in the first place. So you need there to be a little bit of wiggle room and some trust with whoever is the other side of that commitment to say, yeah, 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 I hear you. The circumstances are a bit tough. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Depending on who you're doing this contract with and what the context is, you do need that kind of wiggle room usually for reasonable exceptions to apply. And you mentioned the social aspect of it. One thing I was thinking when you mentioned that was that I know some people who made commitments to go to a gym regularly. And then if one of them didn't show up, say Rebecca, the others would post a picture on Facebook saying, we're all here. Where are you? That's awesome. Can students perhaps sometimes leverage peer pressure to encourage behavior consistent with their long run goals? Let's note that when they backed off on that, I stopped going to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> That is absolutely 100% consistent. And actually, thank you for bringing this up because I should have said this earlier. When I say increase the price of ice, that doesn't necessarily mean cash price. That's a good example of increasing the social price, the social cost of failing to go to the gym. It's a different form of payment, so to speak, is reputation and peer influence. But it's very much exactly in the heart of what we mean. And a lot of people on the STIG website actually do not put money at stake. They do put the reputation. They name a referee and supporters who get informed of whether they succeed or fail. And that's it. There's no money. And we still get thank you emails from people about how it helped them. You got to know your type. And maybe that's going to drive you more than 100 bucks. And so do that instead of the 100 bucks or both. Just going back to the fertilizer example, and I'm wondering if you could set up something very similar in a classroom where students commit to something early on that has a little bit of wiggle room to it, but might actually get them to follow through by the end of the semester. There have been studies on things of this nature, getting students to give them flexibility for when to do assignments versus getting them to commit to when their assignments are. And when students are committed to when the assignments are, rather than giving them flexibility, performance tends to be better. And it doesn't matter whether the commitments are imposed by the instructor or whether they were self-imposed, as long as there are deadlines with a penalty. Students tend to do things. And I think that's true for us, too, that if we have an abstract that needs to be submitted for a conference, I suspect there's a lot of them submitted right before that midnight deadline. So deadlines can be helpful, I think, too. Yeah. I know I don't do anything unless it has a deadline. <laughs> and yeah, I have deadlines every day. I remember being told by a few different admissions panels in a few different instances that you can definitely see if you look at the likelihood of acceptance, you see a strong correlation between submitting the application early and last minute. These are two kind of difficult to get into schools. And if you look at people who submitted a week to a month early before the deadline, that's not a factor that's used in decision making, but they do end up with a higher likelihood of getting admitted. That these are students that have their act together, have everything in order, and are stronger students overall than students who submitted last minute. 
So it's not saying submit early and you increase your odds of getting in. Just to be clear, this is not a causal mechanism. This is a correlation. <laughs> it reminds me of another study we referred to. I don't remember the exact citation, but there had been all these studies, and we talked about this in an earlier podcast. There had been a lot of studies suggesting that students who took notes by hand did better than students who took notes on a computer or a mobile device. And there was a randomized controlled experiment done maybe a year and a half or so ago where half the class used computers for half of the class, the other half took notes by hand, and they found there was no significant difference depending on how any individual students took the notes. The difference was those students who chose to take notes by hand generally tended to be more successful no matter what way in which they took their notes. So it's a self-selection issue that we see in a lot of these studies that can be problematic in interpreting the results. We always end our podcast by asking, what's next? What's next for us is coming October, November, we're going to be releasing over 1,000 ratings of charities in America at Impact Matters, which is the other charity which I started, which you mentioned briefly. Impact Matters is providing guidance to donors to help them choose good charities because there's sadly no real good venue for doing this in mass right now. There's way too many groups that are focused strictly on accounting data, and accounting data can be very, very misleading. But we are focused on what matters, impact, hence our name, Impact Matters. And we're going to be releasing 1,000 ratings October, November. I don't know when the podcast comes out, but if it comes out before then, great. Help us get this out there. We also want to form student groups that help communicate and learn from what we're doing so they can understand what do we mean by impact. So it's something that we want to form student groups on campuses about. So please do reach out if you have any interest in getting involved or getting students involved. We'll include a link to that in the show notes as well as contact information. Awesome. Thank you, Dean. Thanks it's so always much. a pleasure. Thank you both. Great Thank to talk you. with you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.